Battling violence in our communities might not be so much different than combating an infectious disease. Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Coming up on the show, we'll be talking with Dr. Noe Romo, director of the Pediatric Inpatient Service at Jacoby Medical Center in the Bronx. Dr. Romo is involved with the Stand Up to Violence program at Jacoby. Jacoby is the only level one trauma center in the Bronx where we see pediatric and adult patients victimized by trauma. So it's almost like the epidemiologic center of where this violent trauma comes from. So we can intervene both at the hospital level and at the community level to prevent violence from ever happening in the community and also to try to prevent retaliation and re-injury in the hospital. More from Dr. Romo coming up. But first, we check in with a pediatric hospitalist at the Children's Hospital at Montefiore. Dr. Alyssa Silver is also involved with helping to combat gun-related injuries. She's leading a research study that provides gun safety counseling for parents and caregivers of children who are hospitalized at her facility. Dr. Silver, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so you're a pediatrician, but perhaps first and foremost, you're a mom. Yes, My daughter is 10, um, my middle son is 8, and then I also have a um, son who's going to be 5 tomorrow. (laughs) Wow. Happy birthday to him. Thank you. So how do you talk to your kids about gun violence? Um, Well, you know, it's it's a scary topic that you don't necessarily want to have to talk about a lot with the kids, but they are exposed to it in the form of, um, you know, You know, we try to limit the amount of media that they see it on, but especially my older daughter, you know, kids talk a little bit more about this topic. Um, And also in school, they're exposed to um, active shooter drills um, in the schools. So that's kind of where they first had their questions about uh, gun violence and that topic. Yeah. So what kinds of questions are you hearing from your kids? Um, So the first time this came up, which is actually what got me interested in doing more from the professional side of um, things was when my my eight-year-old son, when he was in kindergarten, um, I had bought him a glow-in-the-dark dinosaur T-shirt, and I brought it home. I thought he'd be all excited because it was a cool T-shirt. And his reaction was, well, Mommy, we do these drills in school where we have to hide in the corner in the dark from the bad people with the guns. And I'm afraid if I wear this T-shirt that glows, it will glow and the bad people with the guns will see me. Um, and so, of course, that broke my heart. (laughs) Um, I thought, wow, if this is, you know, what kids in our society think um, and have these fears, you know, there's obviously the effects that we hear about from gun violence in the media, but there's also these secondary effects on um, kids who are in these drills in school. So we, you know, trying to kind of calm their fears in the context of other drills, you know, they do fire drills, they do all kinds of drills at school. So trying to, you know, downplay a little bit of the dangers of the, you know, reality of it, um, although sadly it is a potential reality. But we do talk about gun safety with, um, you know, general exposure to guns in their in the environment. Um, and so we've talked at home a lot about, you know, if you ever see a gun, what to do to, you know, run away, don't touch it, go tell a grown up, that kind of thing. Um, but sadly, from, you know, my professional side, we know that research has shown that educating kids about gun safety is not necessarily effective, um, that there are a lot of kids who even when they go through safety training and even classes on gun safety and what to do not to touch the gun, we know that they still are very inclined to go and touch the gun and pick it up. We unfortunately hear these stories a lot, read these stories a lot in the news where a kid will go to show a gun to a friend that's in the house and then, wow, the gun goes off. Right. And that's, you know, sadly, most common in um, 
these gun violence tragedies in younger children. They're most often these unintentional shootings where it is often in the context of kids either exploring in their own homes and coming upon a gun um, or in the context of showing it to either a friend or a sibling. And, you know, sadly, when kids go to touch a gun, one of the, the most common things they'll do is pull, a, pull the trigger. How do you see the impact of gun violence play out in your hospital, in your line of work? At the Children's Hospital at Montefiore, we're, we're not a, um, a trauma center, so um, we don't see a lot of the trauma victims when it comes to gun violence. Occasionally, we'll have patients transferred over for kind of subspecialty management after um, gun violence, but we don't see it so commonly as, say, some of the other trauma centers here in New York. That being said, you are now, though, launching a study on gun violence, actually more specifically gun safety, correct? Yes. So it's something that, I mean, the American Academy of Pediatrics has um, for years, and in the last time they released a policy statement was in 2012, talking about how pediatricians, you know, need to do to um, respond to the epidemic of gun violence. Um, and it's one of our responsibilities as, um, you know, providers who take care of, of kids to help um, counsel and educate families on um, gun safety issues the same way that we talk to parents about car seats and bicycle helmets and all the other safety stuff that we talk about. And so, you know, we had the idea to talk about gun safety and safe storage with families while their kids are hospitalized. Um, and we sort of modeled this after a lot of hospitals have done this with tobacco smoke exposure counseling. And so, you know, finding, um, especially here in the Bronx, we do it often where we have a high, um, high rates of asthma. We talk about smoke exposure and trying to limit that with kids. So as... Um, you know, physicians who were motivated to try to improve gun safety for our patients. Um, we thought we'd use the time. A lot of times parents are just kind of hanging out in the hospital um, while their kids are waiting for stuff or kind of going through different tests or waiting to get better. So we thought we'd use this time to talk to parents about gun safety. So how do you approach parents <laughs> in that setting? So, you know, our study is kind of a randomized controlled trial. We have three different groups. And so we basically approach parents and inform them that we're doing a, um, a study to talk about gun safety and um, people's kind of thoughts about gun violence in our community, um, because it is something that's very sort of specific depending on regions where people are. Um, you know, certainly there is there are these little aspects of gun culture, right? So here in the Bronx, it's very different than, say, some communities in the South. And so we kind of wanted to get a sense, first of all, what our parents in our community think about gun safety and gun violence, and also try to talk to, to parents about safe storage. And um, we're utilizing the Be Smart campaign, which is was developed by Everytown for Gun Safety and Moms Demand Action. Um, where, you know, it's nonpartisan. It's really not focused on being anti-gun, but more about gun safety and safe storage. So the presumption is that everyone might have a gun. And so, you know, how can we keep our kids safe in that respect? So what have you learned so far? How long ago did you start yeah. this? So we have um, enrolled about 100 out of the 250 um, patients. We don't really have preliminary data at this point. We have sort of anecdotally found that many parents have responded that they don't have guns in their home. Um, I don't know if that's 
true or not. But many parents have responded with sort of, you know, you can see the light bulb go off when we talk about different elements of gun safety. Um, you know, one of the tenets of the Be Smart campaign is asking about guns in someone else's home when your child goes there to spend time or to play. And so a lot of people have been surprised by thinking, oh, gosh, I've never asked that question. You know, I really should ask that question. Um, and as part of the study, we, uh, you know, we do this whole kind of counseling thing while they're in the hospital. And then we call them the parents again a month after they leave the hospital to see if they've changed that practice at all in terms of when their kids go to someone else's house. So that's how you're measuring your that's success? Our, yeah, that's our primary outcome is whether or not they are changing that behavior. Over how long of a period of time do you plan to do this? Um, well, <laughs> hopefully not that much longer um, as far as the study goes. I mean, we plan to try to continue to do this um, educational work with families. But part of the limiting factor is obviously that there's really no funding for this research. So it's a lot of it has dragged on because it relies on the fact that we are sort of waiting for, you know, we have medical students that volunteer to help us with the research or residents. But it's not like having a consistent research assistant person who's constantly enrolling patients. So what can you do with the findings? Well, we hope that if we find that this intervention, the Be Smart campaign, actually does change behavior of, of parents, um, you know, we would like to study it in different settings because, again, the gun culture is very specific to regions. So what we'd like to do is investigate this in a multi-centered way, so in different hospitals in different regions of the country and see if that works. Um, and if it, if we show that even if it just works here in the Bronx, sure, we'll make it more of our standard of, of care, of practice to do these in this educational intervention with parents. You mentioned the challenge of funding. Are you actively seeking funding for this project? Uh, yes. <laughs> and I have done a little bit of... Um, trying without success. Um, I've been involved in trying sort of a more newer um, platform for getting funding through a foundation, the Consano Foundation, that um, does like crowdfunding for medical research. Um, so it's a sort of private, different way to get funding. But again, it's only dependent upon whatever that source is able to generate. The NRA recently responded to a position paper put out by the American College of Physicians that was aimed at reducing firearms injuries and deaths. Yes. The NRA shot out a tweet that said someone should tell self-important anti-gun doctors to stay in their lane. Yes. Doctors shot back with their own media firestorm. They started a campaign called This Is Our Lane. Yes. And What's then, your take on all that? I mean, I firmly support the This Is Our Lane um, whole movement. It has really been a kind of social media frenzy. Um, I don't know if you've seen, I mean, there's been some powerful images um, released with this whole campaign in really trying to, um, you know, inform the NRA that, you know, we are all tremendously affected by gun violence. And, you know, I, I um, in one of the responses to the NRA, and I'm sorry, I forget who it was that said it, you know, we may not be anti-gun, but we are anti-bullets in the bodies of human beings. I mean, that is really what we're trying to prevent as physicians is the, you know, mortality and morbidity that comes along with the gun violence. Here in the Bronx, have you talked with colleagues in the trauma center that are dealing with this day to day in a very traumatic way? 
Yeah, so I haven't really spoken with the um, emergency medicine physicians or the trauma surgeons themselves, but I have spoken um, extensively with Dr. Noe Romo. He's a um, a physician at Jacoby who runs the Stand Up to Violence program there, which is a hospital-based program that um, deals with, you know, children and teens affected by various types of violence, but in particular with gun violence. And um, they use a very successful model with community outreach workers. So they're, um, you know, members of the community that can partner with the families and children affected by gun violence to try to help not only work through the initial um, sort of instance of gun violence, but also help to intervene when it comes to thoughts of retaliation and um, gang involvement and all of those aspects that go along with it. Dr. Silver, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. (laughs) It was a pleasure. Dr. Alyssa Silver is a pediatric hospitalist at the Children's Hospital at Montefiore. Dr. Silver made reference to a program at Jacoby Medical Center called Stand Up to Violence. The program is based on the idea that violence is a disease and should be treated with methods and strategies used to fight sickness. Dr. Noe Romo serves as the program's medical director. He's with me now in the studio. Dr. Romo, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So you are not a native to New York City. I am not, no. Where did you grow up? So I uh, was born uh, and raised in East Los Angeles. How was East L.A. in any way like or unlike the Bronx? You know, it, it's interesting because one of the main reasons why I came out, I came out to the Bronx initially in 2003 for medical school. And when I interviewed out here, when I lived out here during medical school, I realized the similarities between East L.A. and the Bronx, um, predominantly um, with the population in the neighborhoods and uh, predominantly the degree of violence and the violent trauma that disproportionately affects communities of color. Um, growing up in East L.A., uh, with predominantly um, Hispanic um, population there and a large proportion of violence, at least during the 80s when I was growing up. And it was um, interesting to see that same population here going through those same things. Um, so similar populations, uh, very much underserved, uh, very much immigrant populations in poverty. So there was a lot of similarities between those two places, which kind of made me feel at home um, here in the Bronx. What inspired you to get into medicine? Um, you know, I think it was a combination of things. Um, I think growing up in East L.A., I, I definitely came to realize at a very young age that um, there was definitely um, a lack of Spanish-speaking physicians who could provide services to patients. You know, I often found myself translating, for example, for my mother at the pediatrician's office or even for her own visits sometimes. Um, and just seeing that, you know, I never uh, once remember ever encountering in my childhood or adolescence a Spanish-speaking physician. Um, and just seeing how there was such a need for that and how much you can actually do. Um, I did have some, I do have some uncles actually in Mexico who are physicians. Um, and that kind of also helped influence my path. And I always knew I wanted to do something um, to help the community, to help others. I didn't know exactly what that would be. And medicine appeared to be a, a nice way to kind of combine uh, those two things. How challenging is it for a kid who grows up in a community that is marred by violence, mm-hmm. that has this type of conflict, to go on to medical school? <laughs> um, it's not easy. You know, it's a, it's a question that's often asked of me whenever we deal with issues of diversity and uh, trying to enhance the population pool and and trying to make people understand that where people come from matters. And, you know, oftentimes the response I get, well, you know, Noah, you made it out. You know, why can't everybody else just make it out? And 
pick themselves up by their own bootstraps, as they say, you know. And uh, I always reply to that. There's one of my favorite quotes of Dr. King says that it is, it is unjust to ask a bootless man to pick themselves up by the bootstraps. And I think that is exactly right. You know, I think there's a lack of resources. Um, there is a lack of opportunities. And the reason why I'm here, I think, is a combination of a couple of things. I think I, I had two parents at home. Um, my dad were both Mexican immigrant parents. Uh, my dad primarily worked. My mother stayed at home to just keep us out of trouble, basically. I'm one of four boys, so I imagine how easy that was. Um, and there was a really, and every summer we went back uh, to Mexico for about two, three months to my grandfather and my grandmother, where they essentially had like a farm, and we spent the summer out there. So it kind of kept us in line with who we were, and it kept us out of trouble a bit. Um, I was also blessed to have a lot of luck along the way with teachers through elementary school and junior high school and high school that kind of identified me as someone that, you know, was going to make it for some reason and gave me a chance that nobody else did and took me out of some schools in East LA when I was in elementary school, actually. They had a teacher in third grade who had transferred to um, a neighboring school district more suburban school district who called my house when I was in fifth grade and spoke to my mom and said, you need to take Noah out of the school that he's in now. He's going to come to this school to a gifted program and that's it. And I had no choice. And ever since then, I think my uh, life took on a different trajectory. How would you say your life experiences help to inform your work as a pediatrician here in the Bronx? You know, I think it's the foundation of everything that I do. You know, um, I work at Jacoby and uh, City Hospital here in the Bronx, which primarily serves a immigrant population, a large Spanish-speaking population, um, and a large African-American population as well. But I think the immigrant experience um, is very universal, um, although there are some inherent differences with culture and language. I think just the experience of being the son of immigrants and being first generation here is unique, and um, it gives you a different perspective and a different understanding. And I do think it makes a difference when you have physicians who understand their patients in a different way. Um, and it gives me a certain level of empathy and understanding, in particular with the patients of violent trauma who I see, because I often find myself seeing you know, my old friends, uh, cousins who were victimized, during that time, um, and every time you know, I have to inform a mother or a father of their loss, I see my aunts, my uncles, or neighbors, and I think that takes on a life of its own. So tell us about the anti-violence program that you're involved with. Yeah, you know, uh, it's called the Stand Up to Violence program um, at Jacoby. It is uh, derived from the statewide SNUG initiative, which is funded through the Department of Criminal Justice, and we, we started back in... 2014 is the official start. Did you found the program? So I'm the medical director of the program. I was instrumental in helping to write the grant and to design the program along with uh, the leadership over at Jacoby and the Department of Social Work and the Department of Trauma Surgery and Adult Emergency Medicine and Pediatric Emergency Medicine. I was actually contacted um, by them when I was still doing my fellowship over at Columbia and getting my master's there in public health to help them in writing the grant and in designing the program. And we decided to use this cure violence model um, to, and make it based out of a hospital. So essentially what that means is we we take what we call credible messengers, which are individuals from the community who were previously involved in violence or previously incarcerated or previously involved in gangs who can now essentially act as mentors and as mediators. Um, and this program was very successful elsewhere at a community level 
um, but had never before been based out of a hospital. So what our idea was over at Jacoby was, hey, why don't we bring these program to the hospital? Um, Jacoby is the only level one trauma center in the Bronx where we see pediatric and adult patients victimized by trauma. So it's almost like the epidemiologic center of where this violent trauma comes from. So we can intervene both at the hospital level and at the community level to prevent violence from ever happening in the community and also to try to prevent retaliation and re-injury in the hospital. So how do you do that when someone comes into the hospital with a gunshot wound? Yeah, you know, um, so it's interesting. It's kind of a a multi-pronged approach. Um, We have a program director who is a licensed social worker. Her name is Erica Mendelson. She's the program director. I have myself as as a medical director. And then we have... Um, six community outreach workers who specialize in different neighborhoods throughout the Bronx, from the, primarily in the 47th, 49th, and the 43rd precinct. And we decided on those areas based on uh, historical data, uh, homicide data um, that we gathered, and also based on the patients that we saw. So when a patient comes in as victimized, um, they're seen by myself, a social worker, and our outreach worker. And my main role is to try to help them kind of bridge that gap between the physicians, try to help their understanding of their medical conditions, and support them any way I can. Um, our social worker, Erica, sees them, also provides support, things like PTSD screening, depression screening, any other resources that they need. But the biggest component really is the, uh, the outreach workers who respond in the hospital who see these patients um, and can essentially extend a handout and from my end, I think anybody who's victimized by violent trauma is the same thing as any other disease that comes in. I think we have, as physicians, we have a duty to first and foremost um, attend to the acute needs and save their lives, obviously, and treat patients acutely. But we also have an obligation to figure out why they came to the hospital in the first place and prevent them from coming back. So these outreach workers are instrumental in helping us figure out um, why these individuals were shot. And uh, if they're thinking about retaliation and if there's anything that we can do from a community standpoint to prevent that from happening. So they can essentially mediate disputes or prevent somebody from even coordinating a retaliation right on the spot. How big of a challenge is that? Because I would imagine there is a lot of anger in that room after someone's been shot. Absolutely. You know, I think, you know, the way we always open up the door is when we ask about retaliation, are you having any thoughts about getting these guys back, for example? And even if they say no... Um, my initial inclination is always like, you know, it's abnormal if you wouldn't have these thoughts. It's normal to have these thoughts, obviously, because somebody just violated you in a very horrific way. And it's normal for you to have thoughts of retaliation. It's what you do with those thoughts that makes a difference. Um, and then I kind of leave the room and the outreach workers, you know, who they can identify more with, especially if they're from their neighborhoods or their individuals that they know either from prison time or from previous gang affiliation. And we're not affiliated with the police in any way, so they confide in us and can tell us, hey, look, this is what happened, and I'm having thoughts about getting these guys back, and our outreach workers can really kind of just mediate it on the spot and at least calm it down for a little bit. The goal is to, like, can you just shut it down for now until you get better and let things calm down and sort themselves out? You're really just buying some time because people are going to be impulsive when they're angry. So if we can just buy some time and get people to focus on their health initially, the outcomes later on are much better. How are you able to determine whether or not you're having an impact? Well, you know, it's interesting. So we have a two-pronged approach, like I told you. We have the community data and we have the hospital data. So from the, commu- from the community data rise, we're in the three precincts that we mentioned, the 43rd, 47th, and 49th. And 
we compare historical data with our current data. So we compare uh, data from prior to 2014 to after 2014, and we do a pre and post analysis. And we try to control for um, those areas where we're at, whereas when the police is always is also at. And what we've noticed is that collectively, in all three of our target areas, we have decreased shootings by 52% compared to the four years prior. 52%? We that's significant. Yeah. And that's not to say that, you know, the police efforts are not to do with that. Absolutely, they are. And the way we control for that also is by saying, okay, in the areas that we are in, but and the police is in, that's great. But what about the areas where we are not in and the police is also there? And what is that difference? And we still have a significant difference in those numbers. So we like to think that, you know, we are having an influence as well. And, you know, we don't work directly with the police, um, but I think we are preventive and we are not reactionary, right? So we try to prevent the violence from ever even happening. So in the community, uh, we have um, all of our outreach workers carry a caseload of up to 15 participants. And these are individuals from the community who they've identified as high risk who are either actively carrying a gun or a weapon or are actively involved in gangs. And they essentially, the main objective is to prevent them from shooting. So whatever that takes to do, uh, mediate any active disputes. And in the hospital, we keep tabs on all the patients that we see and we look for rates of re-injury a year or two after. And, and so far, we've been able to decrease the rates of re-injury in the patients that we have seen. We've improved the rates of follow-up um, in the clinic as well. And we've improved the rates of us being able to actually figure out why individuals were injured, try to prevent that re-injury from happening. I was going to ask the question, how much of the violence that you see would you say is gang-related? Um, so I would say the majority of it is, you know, if I was... Uh, I have to look at the actual numbers, but if I was taking, I would say about sixty to seventy percent of it is likely gang related. Um, there's another percentage of it that's um, drug trade related. Uh, another percentage of it that's related to not necessarily gangs, but you know, there's a lot of things that go on by just being from a certain neighborhood. So even if you're not particularly in a gang per se, there's different disputes or beefs, as they call them, on the street that are just between rival neighborhoods um, for reasons that often are unknown. A lot of times they just don't know why they hate that other housing complex, for example. They just know that for 20 years they've had this rivalry and that they just don't go over there. So oftentimes shootings are just related to those types of rivalries that just kind of have been going on and stemming for years. What would you say are the biggest challenges to combating gang violence or just simply violence in these communities? You know, I, I think that there's such a culture um, around gangs and violence, and um, there's such a normalcy to it. Um, historically, you know, we know historically and currently, you know, the Bronx is still the borough of New York City with the highest homicide rate, with the highest number of shootings. Um, not surprisingly, it's also the borough of New York City with the highest rates of people living below the federal poverty line, right? So I think that there's a lot of social economic factors that influence this behavior. And I think it's easy for people uh, to blame individuals and to say, well, these people are bad people. You know, they're gangsters or thugs or this and they're that. Um, when in reality, I think there's a lot more to that. I think whenever an individual chooses to shoot somebody or somebody is shot, there's a cascade of events that led to that. And there's a, a multitude factors that contribute to that individual getting shot. And it's not as simple as just blaming the individual. So I think what we try to do is to try to change that norm to essentially make people understand that it's not normal for people to get shot. And whenever an individual um, is victimized or shot, especially in our neighborhoods, we do what's called a shooting response. So we go out there 
And we do essentially a community march around that neighborhood to make people aware that, hey, somebody was shot here, and it's a big deal. Community leaders come out. Our outreach workers are out there. Some family members come out sometimes of the victims. Because people need to realize what's happening in their neighborhoods and take ownership of it. Because this is not normal. And it's not normal for, for example, children to go to bed every night, you know, listening to gunshot wounds. It's not normal for kids to know somebody who's been killed. You know, we did a couple of years back, we did a, a study in, the, in our pediatric emergency room where we surveyed all individuals age 12 to 17 who came into the ER not for violent injury, for other reasons that you go through an emergency room for an asthma attack, for example, or an infection or the flu and and we just asked them simple questions. For example, did you hear gunshots in the last six months? Do you know somebody who's been killed in the last year? Um, close to 60% of children reported knowing somebody who'd been killed in the last year. And 50% reported um, hearing gunshots nearby in the last two weeks or so. Um, that's concerning. And those are long-term, um, long-lasting effects that we have on a developing child. So as a pediatrician, what's your advice to parents in these communities who are exposed to this type of violence? You know, I, I think um, the goal should be to try to limit the exposure as much as possible and to engage in your community and empower your community. You know, I, I think what often happens in these communities, there's a, a sense of indifference sometimes and a sense of hopelessness. I think when you feel like you can't control what goes on in your neighborhoods because it's out of your reach and people get shot, people are involved, and there's nothing you can do. Um, I think there is something you can do. And just because you live in a neighborhood that's, quote-unquote, not the best neighborhood or that's riddled with um, a lot of socioeconomic factors that we spoke of prior does not deny you the right to walk down the street in peace. You know, and, not, and, and that's, I think, what um, bothers me the most is that there's a lot of people in the city that are not able to just take a walk down the street with their children without fear of being hit by a stray bullet. And community violence affects all of us, and, and I think we need to look at it like the disease that it is to treat it as such. Dr. Romo, thank you so much for coming in. No problem. Dr. Noet Romo is the director of the Pediatric Inpatient Service at Jacoby Medical Center in the Bronx. He serves as the medical director for the facility's Stand Up to Violence program. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter for show updates and New York City tidbits. We're listed under WFUV's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. Thanks so much for listening.